Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Inside Asia podcast from the Center for Asian Democracy at the University of Louisville. This is Dave Buckley, CAD's director, and Paul Weber, endowed chair of politics, science, and religion. I'm alone today again on the interviewer side of the mic, uh, but never fear, uh, I'll be joined before long by Dr. Taha Roof, our new postdoctoral fellow at CAD. Um, he's joined us in Louisville just in the last uh, couple of weeks. We're thrilled to have him and look forward to uh, introducing him to our conversations before long. Uh, as listeners know, thanks to the great leadership of our colleague, Tori Dahl, CAD's podcast channel has been freshened up. Episodes are easily accessible on our website through the University of Louisville, as well as through Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching for Center for Asian Democracy. Subscribe, review, and stay up to date on future content. We're going to be joined today by Dr. Nilafur Siddiqui uh, for a discussion on politics and violence in Pakistan, uh, with special attention on the upcoming January election there. Nilifer is uh, assistant professor, I believe that's still true, surely must be associate soon, of political science at the Rockefeller College of Public Affairs and Policy uh, at the University of Albany, State University of New York. Uh, her research interests include political violence, uh, political behavior, and the politics of religion and democracy uh, across South Asia, uh, and in particular in Pakistan. Her book, uh, Under the Gun, Political Parties and Violence in Pakistan, was published late last year, I believe, by Cambridge um, and is a wonderful examination of why political parties in the country engage in violence uh, or form electoral alliances with other violent actors. Um, her related work has appeared um, in or is forthcoming in a whole spectrum of the best journals in our field from the APSR to the Journal of Politics and Comparative Political Studies and beyond. Um, as you'll hear in our conversation, in January 2024, voters in Pakistan will head to the polls for what's shaping up to be very contentious national elections. Ousted leader Imran Khan's ability to contest those elections remains unresolved, um, although unlikely. Political violence continues to challenge the country as well, um, including on the morning that we recorded our conversation, as you'll hear a bit about um, from Nilifer. Uh, that makes it all the more important uh, to engage with voices who understand the complicated intersection between democracy and violence uh, in the country, uh, voices like Nilifer's. So without any further ado, let's get right to my conversation with Professor Nilifer Siddiqui. Alrighty, we are here today with Nilfer Siddiqui. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us, Nilfer. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, maybe we can jump right in with um, the news that came out within the last couple of weeks about the scheduling, officially it looks like, um, of Pakistan's upcoming elections. Um, maybe you can first just give us a little bit of context for why the date of those elections was actually kind of up in the air and um, why it looks like these are now going to uh, happen firmly in early 2024. Sure. Yeah. So that actually is a bit of a complicated question. And so I want to rewind a little bit, not too far back, but perhaps we can start in 2018. Um, and so what happened in 2018 is that the national elections at the time were won by a political party called the Pakistan Tehreek Insaf or the PTI. Uh, the PTI is led by Imran Khan. Now, Imran Khan is um, you know, quite uh, an interesting character. He was a former cricket player. He um, led Pakistan to victory in the 1992 Cricket World Cup, which I can tell you as someone who was a young child in Pakistan at this time was a very seminal moment for everybody um, uh, in Pakistan at the time. And after, after he retired from cricket, he then became a philanthropist. He set up a hospital um, 
in Lahore in Pakistan, a cancer hospital, um, and then in 1996 set up a political party, the the PTI that I mentioned, um, and entered politics. Now, up until 2018, um, when Pakistan has been a democracy, which has not always been the case, uh, politics has primarily been dominated by two other political parties, the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz, or the PMLN, and the Pakistan People's Party, or the PPP. So power has really alternated between these two political parties. Uh, what made 2018 so different was that the PTI won for the first time, kind of ushering in this third possibility for the voters um, and signaling a change in the way that civilian politics has so far been run in Pakistan. Um, in, in many ways, this you know can be seen as good news. It really did mobilize a large segment of the population, especially uh, younger Pakistanis and urban Pakistanis who um, were perhaps less likely to participate in the past. However, the problem was um, that, and I think even though there is debate around this topic, most would agree that these elections were not entirely free and fair, that the PTI would um, probably, well, it's unclear whether they would have been unable to win without the military support, but it's clear that the military support was essential for their victory. Um, and this was in part because pressure was applied to the PMLN, especially, but other political parties as well, prior to the elections, which made sure that there was an uneven playing field provided to these political parties. So in this context, then the PTI won with the backing of the military. Um, and between about 2018 and early 2022, um, Pakistan had what many think of as a hybrid regime. So it had the civilian face in the form of the PTI and Imran Khan, but it was really, um, uh, governance was really only possible because of this kind of explicit and almost overt role played by the military. Um, some people call this version of the hybrid regime the, quote, same page hybrid uh, regime, which suggested that the military and the civilians were on the same page um, and were able to, uh, you know, work together in order to um, conduct Pakistan's policy, um, both domestic and foreign. What happened in early 2022 however, was that there was, for a number of reasons, including a falling out between um, the chief of army staff at the time and Imran Khan over the identity of um, the ISI or inner service intelligence individual chief, um, there was a falling out over this kind of personality dispute. Um, it was also to the backdrop of extreme economic crisis in the country. Um, and so in April of that year, there was a no confidence vote um, carried out in parliament. So this was done through parliamentary means, like through legal means. Um, and the opposition parties came together and they um, the, the, the motion, the no confidence motion passed. And so Imran Khan uh, stopped being prime minister in April 2022. I mentioned this falling out between the chief of army staff and Imran Khan because um, Again, some would argue, given the role of the military in Pakistan, that this no confidence motion was only possible because either the military provided support for it or at least took a backseat and allowed the opposition parties to act. So in 2022, we had the a coalition uh, party, uh, coalition of parties come together under the Pakistan Democratic Movement or PDM. Um, the prime minister at the time was the brother of Nawaz Sharif, Shabazz Sharif. Nawaz Sharif has, is the head of the PMLN or as the N and PMLN stands for Nawaz. Um, and so from April 2022 until just a couple of months ago, this coalition part, uh, this coalition government was um, basically ruling the country. Again, the economic crisis continued. Um, and then we were supposed to have elections, um, but it became clear in the summer that these were unlikely to happen on schedule. 
Um, one of the reasons that they were unlikely to happen on schedule was because um, there was some concern or questions raised about um, a census that had just been conducted in Pakistan and making sure that the new constituency delimitations were taking place on the new census. So there was this other reason, and there are rules provided about how quickly there needs to be delegitimation um, based on the census um, and how quickly these constituencies have to be uh, created. So there was this other thing that was happening, but it's also clear, I think, to many that uh, the powers that be wanted there to be time um, before the elections happen in order for the political crisis to kind of just settle down as well. So an interim government um, was came to uh, power in August um, and then just I think it was last week they announced that elections would now happen in January. Um, so so that's where we're at in terms of the yeah. election scheduling. So, so does it effectively then set up as kind of a, a, a two way race between the kind of PDM coalition and forces that are more kind of in Khan's orbit? Or is the story not going to be that complicated? Because I know a lot of times these coalitions reshuffle from election to election um, and aren't necessarily ideologically stable. Yeah, so I think the big question mark is what happens with the PTI. So um, as of right now, Imran Khan, who was arrested, um, so that's the other critical aspect um, about what happened after the no confidence motion. So in April, he was um, no longer prime minister, but instead of kind of going quietly to the sidelines, as may have been in the case in Pakistan's history, um, Imran Khan was very vocal and he made very clear that um, including alleging a conspiracy that the U.S. had been behind his ouster. Um, and so this really rallied the populace. He held weekly um, protests and encouraged people to come out on the streets. Um, so he wasn't going away quietly. And then um, May 9th this year was a big moment as well. Uh, Imran Khan was arrested um, and people came out in very large numbers. Um, they, uh, for the maybe... Potentially for the first time in Pakistan's history, have we seen very direct um, attacks on the military? So military installations, um, even a, um, a home belonging to um, a former member of the military, um, and lots of examples that I think caught a lot of people by surprise because the military has been, in essence, a revered institution in Pakistan. And so what we saw was Khan setting himself up against the military and to some extent winning this fight by really rallying the populace against the military. So Imran Khan has been, uh, was arrested. Um, he, following his conviction, has been barred for running from office, for office for five years. Um, he is appealing his sentence. Um, and uh, what's interesting is that initially uh, the his, his arrest was on the base of this um, being guilty of hiding assets after illegally selling state gifts. And so it was a corruption case. And I see this as ironic because Imran Khan and the PTI's claim to fame was um, that it is an anti-status quo or anti-corruption party. So the Islamabad High Court suspended his three-year prison sentence in a corruption case, and they ordered his release on bail. Um, but then soon after that, this was like short-lived good news for Imran Khan, because um, a special court in Islamabad then ordered him to remain in custody. And this was in connection with a completely different case known as a cipher case. Um, and this is related to a diplomatic document um, that uh, supposedly shows that the U.S. was involved in uh, the no confidence motion or helping in removing Imran Khan for office. And this case or document um, allegedly went missing when it was in the former uh, Imran Khan's possession. 
So, um, so there's a lot of different, uh, you know, laws being used to keep him in prison at the moment, um, and keep him very importantly disqualified from electoral politics. So for the time being, it doesn't look like Imran Khan is going to be contesting the elections. The other thing that happened after May 9th um, of this year was that the PTI itself was members of the PTI were um, taken into custody, they were um, allegedly tortured. And certainly it seems like pressure was applied on them to break ties with the PTI, given the, P the falling out between Khan and the military. So it's really unclear what the PTI will look like without Imran Khan. And given that a lot of the members of the um, party have really left the party. Um, now, this is perhaps not surprising. The PTI is kind of a, you know, even though Imran Khan claims that the PTI is a different kind of grassroots level party, it is also composed of like this conglomeration of elites that have in the past represented these other political parties, the PPP and PMLN. Um, so it is not, I think for me, at least the most shocking thing in the world that they um, felt the pressure and many of them left the party. Yeah, so it's personal leadership is kind of not, not removed entirely, but taken off the active political stage. Exactly. So I think that the PPP and the PMLN will be running independently, um, not as part of the PDM coalition come the elections. Um, and really the fight will be between um, them and then some of the smaller parties. But without the PTI to contest elections, I mean, I kind of anticipate low voter turnout. Um, and I do anticipate that the PMLN is likely to walk away with the majority of the seats. Um, I think, you know, without the PTI contesting, I don't think anybody could argue that it will be a free and fair election. Um, what do we think about the support that the military has provided to the PTI over the years? And that does exist. There is also very clear grassroots level support for the PTI. Um, and I do think that if free and fair elections were to be held tomorrow, the PTI would get um, a sizable percentage of that vote. Yeah, I mean, do, do you have a sense as the campaign period sort of kicks off, um, is is the question, will there be sort of ideological stakes that are meaningful at all or substantively, obviously the, the economic crisis I'm sure matters to, to average Pakistanis, but um, there's also, it sounds like the prospect that this is basically just a referendum on will you participate or not, that the turnout levels almost become more interesting than the, than the um, substantive result of the vote. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that, you know, the one thing that, again, the 2018 elections and Imran Khan's victory showed um, was that, there was um, this move towards perhaps a uh, different type of politics in Pakistan. Historically, I would say much of the voting patterns in Pakistan, particularly in rural areas, has been, like in other developing democracies, based on kind of patron-client relations and clientelistic politics. So what can your candidate provide to you? Um, this has been starting to change as urbanization has taken you know root in Pakistan. But I really think this has been even more the case with the PTI, in part because they have this um, anti-status quo populist politics through the figure of Imran Khan that has proved to be quite popular. Um, now, I don't think the PTI would have won without also cashing in on the clientelistic politics, right? And so that's, they were able to do both simultaneously. So what they were able to do in 2018, which they weren't in 2013, was attract a lot of these um, local elites, which are called electables in Pakistan, away from the PMLN and PPP to contest elections on their behalf. And so that allowed them 
to kind of rely on those sorts of politics in many rural parts of the country, but they were also able to kind of use their rhetoric and their ideology to make inroads with a more urbanizing populace. And so we kind of saw these two trends happening simultaneously. What the PMLN and the PPP have, I think, not been able to successfully do is, is address this latter trend. So they are very much kind of clientelistic politics um, central. They don't seem to really catch up have not seemed to really catch up with this idea that no, um, you know, to succeed in Pakistan today, you also have to take note of kind of this urbanization, this um, mobilized youth, these increasingly partisan politics, um, the use of social media, you know, populist rhetoric, um, and all of that. And so I think that uh, while, you know, if, if elections were allowed to occur fairly, if the 2022 no confidence motion had never happened, I think those poll that election would have been fought between looking both at the performance of the PTI, right, the fact that the economy had had done so poorly over the last few years. I think probably free and fair elections without the no confidence motion would have PTI would have lost because I think they would have faced this economic um, backlash, right, because they oversaw a terrible economy. Um, but but they still would have retained a lot of the populist vote as well. So it would have been a much more interesting election at some level, right? Because there would have been all these different politics and these different issues, people coming out and voting. Now, I just don't, I think you're absolutely right that it's going to be much more about who turns out to vote um, rather than uh, kind of issue-based voting. Um, and the economy, uh, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately for the PMLN, what happened was now, even though, that, you know, the last year the economy has stayed bad, as you might have expected, given the gravity of the situation. But now the voters are placing that blame on the incumbent government, which is the PMLN coalition, right? Because they took over from Imran Khan. So they're going to face that incumbent um, uh, backlash as well. And so it actually, I think in a free fair election, PTI would benefit from that. I think what the PTI has, and I guess this is my last point on this question, what the PTI has been able to do successfully is tie its anti-corruption rhetoric to the economic crisis. So their claim that these parties are corrupt and are stealing from the Pakistani public is also related to the economic crisis the average Pakistani is facing. And so that has actually worked out in their favor, right? Because they're able to pinpoint the problem in these corrupt elite um, and so they can argue that getting rid of this corrupt elite will also be beneficial for the economy. Yeah. Um, one thing that um, that you mentioned as you were talking about kind of increasingly public criticism of the military was even limited sort of violence against some targets that were tied to the military. Um, you know, political violence is not new in, in Pakistan, obviously. And I'm going to talk about your work in that area in, in just a bit. But maybe... Um, before we get to, to your work in that area, um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the news from uh, just this morning, we're recording on um, on Friday, September 29th, um, about these bombings in, in Pakistan, um, if there's any sense of how they might fit into the sort of developing political crisis in the country, um, or, or if we have any sense of, of where they fall in the, in the political landscape in the, in the country. Yeah, definitely. So um, the caveat is that I haven't had a ton of time to look into these attacks because it's it's 2 p.m. and it's been a busy morning. Um, but uh, just a few thoughts. So there have been 
I want to say four attacks today. Um, so there have been a number of attacks. One was quite large, I think, resulting in so far the number is at 52 dead. And so these are large attacks. Um, the two that I just want to mention briefly, is the one is in, was in Balochistan province and the other one was in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. So these, these events were... Um, we're marking the birth anniversary of the Prophet Muhammad, who is, of course, the central prophet in um, in Islam. And this is not unusual for um, these sorts of events to happen in Pakistan. Pakistan is um, majority Sunni, as as I'm sure you know. Um, and within the sect of Sunni, there um, are majority Brailvi. And so in the Brailvi subsect, uh, the prophet has a very central uh, role. Now, it seems, again, we don't have enough information yet, but it seems like at least the Balochistan attack and likely the KP attack as well was carried out by ISIS. Um, ISIS is a Salafi group. Um, and it's those so people are suggesting that, um, you know, not all subsects of Sunni Islam believe that it is OK to mark various events um, through these sorts of celebrations. Um, and so people are, at the moment at least, reading into this attack as being of a sectarian or religious nature itself. Um, and so this is interesting, I think, for a number of reasons. One, I think, is it kind of marks this uh, growing presence of ISIS in the region, in the country, which um, historically has been relatively absent. Um, especially much of the attacks over the last decade have been carried out by the Tehrike Taliban, Pakistan or TTP. Um, there's still some people wondering whether it could be TTP who carried out at least the KP attack, but it's unclear. And it seems like so far people are pointing towards ISIS. Um, it also, I think, signals an increase in attacks over the last year. I think starting in January this year, we've really seen a marked increase in um, insecurity or insecurity rather. Um, and I think that this is a clear fallout from the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the policies that Pakistan has pursued over the last decade or so vis-a-vis um, -vis the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistan Taliban. The other thing that I'm personally interested in is the sectarian nature of the attacks, because um, we are also seeing in Pakistan the rise of Barilvi extremism. So as I mentioned, most Pakistanis, I think, survey data would show that they adhere to a Barilvi interpretation of Islam. Um, but what we have seen increasingly is um, many of these Barilvi groups now organizing and also engaging in violence, which has not historically been the case. And so we've seen a large number of attacks being um, orchestrated on the basis of allegations of blasphemy. Some of these uh, attacks have been mob violence, but there is a uh, group no known as the Tehrik um, al-Bekbaqsan, the TLP, which is um, a group that basically has one issue that, it's, uh, that it claims to uh, be concerned with, which is blasphemy. Um, and so when I was in Pakistan this summer, some people were talking about how many Barilvis, um, especially younger Barilvis, think that um, uh, they have ceded space to Salafis or the Obandis in Pakistan, even though Pakistan is majority Barilvi. And so this Barilvi extremism that we are seeing now, for some seems to be kind of a response to facing this, these attacks from these other forms of organized militancy in the, in the shape of the TTP and now ISIS. 
And so I don't, I think obviously neither of these bode well for the future of Pakistan, um, especially in the short term, um, and, in, and especially in terms of militancy. Um, because, uh, yeah, I think starting this year, we had two attacks on on the police. Um, and really, since then, things haven't really settled down. So um, I think that between the economic crisis and the security situation, um, not to even mention the political turmoil, I think Pakistan is in for a bit of a rough um, next few months. So, um, so far, we've kind of been talking about almost as independent factors, kind of the, the political situation and the elections that are coming up in early January, and then, you know, slightly endemic violence, but violence that seems to be be taking maybe a, a more concerning turn. A lot of your research uh, is actually about how these things are closely related, maybe not these exact examples of violence, but how in general, political violence and electoral competition between parties in, in Pakistan um, are not independent of each other and are in fact kind of co-constituted. Um, I wonder if you could just real quick sort of give us uh, the the rundown of your recent uh, wonderful book, Under the Gun, uh, Political Parties and Violence in Pakistan, and sort of how the framework that you develop in that book um, contributes to how you're sort of seeing the the dynamics that are likely to play out in the next few months in the, in the country. Sure, yeah. So um, my book, which, as you mentioned, came out recently in just uh, November of last year, um, is an in-depth examination of political party violence in Pakistan. And so what I was interested in explaining was why political parties in Pakistan ever use violence at all, given that we would think that they would be punished for its use because voters, all being equal, would not support um, or want a violent political party. Um, and then my second question following from this primary question was, um, how uh, do parties engage in violence and why do we see variation in the ways in which they engage? So some parties engage in violence directly, some outsource it, and some engage in what I call our alliances with militant groups. And so I was writing in, in a particular time period, I was doing my research, um, you know, I think between about 2010 and 2020, I want to say over that 10 year time period. And at least in the beginning of that decade, there was a lot of violence um, in Karachi, which is a mega city in Pakistan of like about close to 20 million people. And here we have very high levels of ethnic political violence um, that was orchestrated by the political parties themselves. And so what I was interested in understanding was like why people voted for these very violent political parties. And I was interested particularly in this ethnic political party known as the Mutahed Akami movement or the MQM, which is an ethnically Mohajir party. Um, and it was uh, engaged in violence directly, was known to have a militant cell as part of its party. Um, it was also known in the 1990s to have a torture cell in the heart of the city where it tortured opposition members or dissident members of the party. Um, but we also had examples of other political parties, including, for example, the PPP, which I mentioned earlier, as um, outsourcing violence to an ethnic militia or criminal gang in Karachi uh, in order both to engage in violence, but also to extort on its behalf. And so I was interested both in why one party engaged in violence directly, or one white party, why the other outsourced violence, but why they engaged in violence at all. And so I wasn't. So what I what I discovered was that um, you know a couple of things. So one, I found that organizational capacity or organizational structure was critical to how a party engaged in violence. And so the MQM was one party which is was at the time very organizationally coherent and very organizationally strong and had the ability to insource violence. Well, the PPP lacked this. And then I also found that there were huge economic gains um, to be made from the use of violence. Um, in this in the city um, through extortion um, and uh, related issues of land mafia and so on. Uh, I also found that violence was often uh, a successful at polarizing an already ethnically polarized populace. Um, 
And uh, but most importantly, I found that ethnic political voters or ethnic voters, excuse me, were unlikely to hold their ethnic political parties accountable for the use of violence, because for all intents and purposes during this time, they were captive to their parties. And by captive, I meant that they didn't really have an exit option. And so um, all Mohajers during this time period felt like they had to vote for the MQM, because if they didn't, then party would turn power would move to another political party, and their needs would not be satisfied by this other political party. So what was interesting in 2018, and I talk about this in my book a little bit, is that the entry of the PTI into Karachi provided for the first time this kind of post-ethnic option for voters. Um, the PTI was competing on, based, not, not on any particular ethnic basis, which was maybe one of the first times that that had happened in the last three decades. And so Mohajir voters and Sindhi voters and Pashtun voters had before them a party that they could turn to that wasn't their own political party, the party to which they had been beholden for so long. And this, along with a number of other military-related um, uh, incidents that were happening at the time, including a paramilitary option, helped kind of break the hold that the parties had over their captive voters. And then the other case that I'm interested in in my book that I deal with is why political parties um, ally with what are sometimes violent sectarian actors. And so here, what I'm interested in is understanding why political parties that seem to be mainstream, like the PMLN, uh, which again, we, we've talked about since the start of this podcast, because it is one of the key political actors in Pakistan today, um, before the 2013 election, before the 2018 election, and before the 2008 election, and even before then, there were always these news stories about the PMLN giving party tickets to actors or individuals who were affiliated with banned anti-Shia groups, or having them contest on their own party ticket. And so what I was interested in was understanding why that was the case. The PMLN is not an explicitly anti-Shia party. It does not need to alienate voters by allying with these groups. And so what was happening that caused this alliance? And so again, what I found was that um, these parties, because they were organizationally weak, and so this is why organizational capacity is such a key part of my argument, but where political parties are organizationally weak, they aren't able to um, gain votes in especially rural constituencies just through their party activity alone. They need to rely on pre-existing elites or electables. Um, and so I argue that in particular parts of the country, particularly those that are urbanizing, um, we have the replacement of the old electable, usually a feudal or landed elite, by these new sectarian actors. And so political parties must rely on these sectarian actors, just like they used to rely on the landed elite. Um, and so this is primarily for purposes of vote gain. The violence, it does not really help the PMLN, right? It's something that they just turn a blind eye to. And so, you know, this is interesting in a number of ways for what's happening today. One is I don't actually, I guess one of the implications is that I don't actually think that we will have very high levels of violence carried out by the political parties themselves. And this is because most of the political parties that will be contesting elections in 2018 are not organizationally very strong. And so they're not going to be orchestrating um, violence themselves at a very high level. Um, what I think is possible is that there might be some um, skirmishes, right, and local level violence um, at polling stations and so on. But I definitely don't think it will be very high level um, with the parties themselves involved. Um, I do think, however, that we should be a little careful, um, and, and I'm sure policymakers are on this, um, but the potential of attacks by militant groups, I think, is very high. So we've seen this in the past with some political parties, especially the Pashtun Party, Pashtun Secular Party, the Wami National Party, being at the receiving end of a lot of militant violence. 
Um, the other thing, though, and this relates to the Braille V party I was talking about, that the Hedike Lebec Pakistan or the TLP, the TLP is very organizationally strong and it has the potential to rile up violence. Um, and it has done so through um, these uh, calls to attack on the basis of alleged blasphemy. Um, and so really, I think that there we should be keeping an eye on what's happening with them, um, especially as they increase their uh, influence um, throughout the throughout the country, because I do think that for 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 violence to get really bad, you do need organizational strength. Um, and so the MQM in Karachi doesn't exist the way it used to, at least for the time being. And so I don't think we're going to see very high levels of violence in Karachi either. Um, and then I do think, however, we will see kind of a return to these alliances with um, with um, criminal or militant actors, however. So that is also something that I anticipate happening before 2018, before um, 2023, excuse me. Yeah, no, it's super, super interesting. Um, I'm going to invoke the podcast host's prerogative here and pivot towards what I do research on, right, which is uh, uh, obviously sort of political influence of religious groups. Religion has been kind of on the margins of a lot of your analysis here uh, of, of, uh, of political violence, um, including maybe today's attacks. Um, and I'm curious to hear you say a little bit more about that. I mean, there, there's sometimes a narrative, um, especially in parts of the Muslim majority world, um, that sort of religious political parties are especially likely to bring violence into politics. They're going to serve as legitimate, you know, sort of uh, they're going to legitimate um, other more extremist groups or maybe their ideologies are uncompromising or, you know, you could explain that in a few different ways. That narrative is definitely out there in public. And there's even some scholarship that kind of comes at things from that direction. Um, you know, I th your work has been more nuanced than that in terms of how you think about how religion is fitting into mobilization and even at times violence. Like, how do you see that playing out in the current environment? Um, are secular parties sort of safer actors from a nonviolence perspective? Um, and if religion is playing a part, how is it playing a part? What are the kind of the mechanisms through which religion is, com is uh, contributing to, to violent mobilization these days? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really great question. And actually what's I think fascinating about the time period in which I was doing research, the most violent political party, which was the MQM, was a very explicitly secular party. Um, and uh, it was an ethnic political party, right? And I do think that, you know, just yesterday in my class, for example, in my class on political violence that I teach here, we had a long conversation about the ways in which religion and ethnicity are similar and the ways in which they are different, right? And so um, I do think that in many ways, ethnicity in the MQM's use of violence was very, it was like a very clear connection, right? So killing on the basis of one's ethnicity felt like a, um, an ideological imperative to a lot of its members, which some might argue is the same role that religion plays for some religious political parties. But that being said, it is important for us to know that MKM was a secular party, right? Um, I also think that the other way in which um, religion played a part in the violence during this per time period was, as I mentioned, through these alliances with sectarian actors. But here, I think the religion was actually incidental to the issue, right? So the PMLN doesn't have, um, for the most part, I mean, there are some exceptions with certain individuals in the party, but it doesn't have an anti-Shia bias overall. So the fact that it allied with or has allied in the past at the local level with anti-Shia or sectarian actors, I argue has much more to do with the fact that these actors are locally influential and they provide a service to an organizationally weak party. So here the religion is not playing a direct role um, really at all. Um, again, there are some exceptions, but for the most part. And even in terms of the relationship between the 
a sectarian actor and the clients at the local level. So I argue that they are, these sectarian actors in many districts or constituencies are proving more influential than local landed actors. And I think part of that is ideology, right? Part of it is um, uh, about this religious appeal. And in fact, you know, there's an article in the New York Times that I cite in the book where um, one of the uh, sectarian actors was making a plea and a speech to his constituents. And he was saying that, you know, Islam does not have this income inequality. Islam does not have this hierarchy in these kinship structures, right? So we are providing you equality. And so there is this explicit appeal to religion, right? So I'm not going to say it's not at all religious or ideological at the local level, but it is also about um, providing this alternative to a very longstanding um, exploitative structure of the feudals or the landed elite and the clients, right? Um, and it, so it's, it's as much about providing this alternative, I think, as it is about this religious appeal. Um, I would say the TLP phenomenon, which is really the, the primary phenomenon, I think that uh, Boston observers are a little concerned with today, um, you know, some would argue that it is religious in the sense that it is about blasphemy, right? And is concerned with um, ensuring that blasphemy does not go unpunished in the country. But in many conversations that I had with various people who are studying this issue in Fox on just this summer, many were talking about things that we have, like phrases or words that we hear about even with other forms of secular violence. So people talked a lot about honor and they talked about masculinity. Some people even said that it's a lot of young men who don't have much else to do. And so they're participating in this group. And there is kind of um, a perverse form of enjoyment in the in the participation, which is actually a very similar argument that a scholar named Oscar Verkaik made about the secular MQM in the 1990s. So I do think like, as you note, that there are, there's, there's a lot of overlap um, between kind of some of the motivation um, between both the secular and the religious political parties um, or, or violent groups, right? Uh, so yeah, not to say they're exactly the same, but definitely to say that you could imagine that, um, that there are similar mechanisms or motivating factors in both. Yeah, no, that's super, super interesting, right? I feel like, you know, the capacity is so important in your work and the, the capacity of local networks to, to mobilize and how that changes the political relationships between parties and, and local actors, right? And I, I, I think it's interesting to think about how religion feeds into that capacity building at the local level, mm. right? Which is putting the emphasis on a very different side of things, right? It's not necessarily about ideology as it is about the ways that might that religion might generate that local capacity that parties struggle to on their own um, generate. Um, that's actually, yeah, that's a really good point. And I think also kind of relates to this idea of like the mosque as providing this coordination function, right? As like bringing people together, uh, providing the space that maybe other organizations or parties don't have. Um, so yeah, I, th I think that's a really good point. And I hadn't thought about how that ideology itself might affect the organization. Yeah, no, super interesting. Um, I wondered if for, for a last few minutes, we could pivot to the international um, and, um, and and tie that in. You've actually already talked a little bit about the Pakistan-U.S. bilateral relationship at the start um, that obviously always looms large in Pakistani politics. Um, is there any sense of how that's likely? Is it going to continue? I mean, you, you, you talked about it in a very specific way. It's tied to, to Khan's sort of legal status. Um, is, is the U.S. relationship likely to be salient in the next couple of months on the campaign trail? And how's that probably going to get mobilized? Yeah, so it's actually kind of fascinating because I think that 
Pakistan has been so obsessed with the U.S. really in contemporary discourse for the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, unsurprisingly, right, because the U.S. has had kind of a large footprint in the country. Um, it's really hard, for example, to overemphasize how pivotal the drone debate was in Pakistan, right? So I was living there between 2009 and 2011. And um, at the time, this was when huge amounts of money were pouring in from USAID and other um, other bureaus and organizations. Um, but at the same time as all this money was coming in to develop um, develop the country, there was also a ton of drone strikes coming down on precisely those areas where the money was going to develop, right? And so this was a huge, a huge issue locally. I really can't, um, I, I really can't overemphasize that. I think every, almost every day there was headlines about this. It really divided people. Um, Anti-American sentiment was at its highest at this point. And so um, compared to that time period, now the U.S. is really almost absent from local discourse in a lot of ways. Um, the cipher, which I'll I'll get to again in a minute, is an exception. But I was speaking with a pollster um, uh, this summer, and he was saying that Pakistan anti-American sentiment of Pakistan is still high, but it's the lowest it's been in a while. And his argument was that it's because uh, the U.S. is just not around enough. Like we're not thinking or talking about it constantly, right? Um, and that's I think in part because. Uh, you know, the Imran Khan, Imran Khan's, you know, kind of anti-U.S. rhetoric for for lack of a better or more nuanced term um, did, I think, have a reaction from the Biden administration as well. And so there was, you know, some cold responses vis-a-vis um, -vis those two um, individuals. Um, but then what happened in April 2022, and I, I alluded to this earlier, but basically Imran Khan alleged that the U.S. had be been behind his ouster, right? And so this really uh, riled up the populace and anti-American sentiment was became quite high again. Belief in the conspiracy was quite high. Um, I forget the numbers exactly, but um, I want to say about 45 to 50% believe this conspiracy theory, so fairly high. Um, and then the contents of this, the allegations were based on this supposed diplomatic document, um, the contents of which were, again, allegedly revealed in The Intercept um, maybe a month or two ago. And, uh, you know, people are reading different things into this document about whether it really suggests U.S. conspiracy to overthrow or whether it just is kind of normal um, bilateral discussion with preferences. Um, so I think people are reading it that differently. But uh, I do think that 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 since Imran Khan has left, there has been this um, left office, there has been more of an effort to kind of normalize U.S. Pakistan relations um, between the military, but also the other um, the other leaders like Shabazz Sharif and then the interim prime minister. So my best guess of how things are going to proceed is that the U.S. is going to continue to take a backseat on um, what's happening. Uh, it seems, again, unlikely that Imran Khan is going to be elected, um, which which appears to be the preference. Um and uh, I don't also see that the U.S. is going to become increasingly or any more salient in local Pakistani discourse. Um, uh, so I guess I guess I mean, the U.S. is never so far away from uh, Pakistani politics uh, and in local Pakistan uh, imagining. But I think it's unlikely to play a very large role in the coming months. Oh, that's great. Um, super helpful context. Well, uh... Professor Nulafersidi, thank you so much for taking the time to, to be with us uh, this afternoon to, to lend your insight. Um, really great to have you. Thanks. Thank you so much. I enjoy the conversation. Um, and to our listeners, we're glad to be with you again as we get into gear in this fall 2023 academic year. 
the Center for Asian Democracies podcast series. We'll be back with you uh, on a just about monthly basis, maybe a little more frequently this year. Um, very soon, uh, we'll be hearing from Dr. Taha Rauf, our new postdoctoral fellow here at CAD. Um, he's getting settled into life in Louisville, and we'll look forward to introducing you to his research um, and voice in the coming weeks. Um, also, keep an eye, as always, on our Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram accounts for event announcements. Uh, we just had a great convening on the rise of religious nationalism in Sri Lanka uh, with uh, Neil Devota from uh, Wake Forest earlier this week. You can find video of that. Uh, on our various website accounts. Um, and we'll have more events coming up later in the semester. As always, subscribe to the Inside Asia podcast on services like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We appreciate your listening and we'll be back with future episodes before too long. <laughs>